Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us, or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you as always. Honor, privilege, and pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. If you would like to call in, please, please do. Uh, I, I know that the focus from many of the major media outlets is the uh, Jared Kushner testimony today and his statement, which uh, I read in full, and we'll get into some of that later. But it really shouldn't be the biggest news story because that doesn't affect your life one bit. Jared Kushner meeting or not meeting with some individuals over the course of the Trump campaign is completely and utterly meaningless to every single one of you that is that is listening in terms of whether there's any effect, any impact whatsoever. But you know what does matter, what does affect you, what you cannot escape, what your family uh, will face and deal with is the health care debacle that is ongoing in this country as a result of Obamacare, the increasing premiums, the uh, continued government intrusion into the healthcare marketplace under the guise of making it more affordable, making it better. And, of course, that's not the case. The government never makes things more affordable and better. Government should have very, federal government should have very limited functions, and we should all be quite clear on what they are. And providing healthcare to every American should not be one of them. This is not a government mandate. This is not what is open to the federal government by the Constitution, and yet here we are having this discussion because right now the Republicans have failed to uphold their promises. So President Trump, who is the single most effective communicator in the Republican Party right now, I think there's no question about that, certainly has the biggest megaphone and also speaks in the most straightforward and uh, blunt non-politician way, he gave a very good, succinct address today on the issue of health care, in which he said, Obamacare is death. The Senate bill protects coverage for pre-existing conditions. And you don't hear this from the Democrats. They like to tell you just the opposite. And they didn't even know the bill. They run out, they say, death, death, death. Well, Obamacare is death. That's the one that's death. And besides that, it's failing. It's failing. It's death. The president, in, in the whole 12 minutes or so of the speech, he was introduced by Vice President Pence beforehand, was doing what I've been wondering, where are the Republicans on this now for months? We heard all these speeches, oh, all the, the eloquence, the vehemence, the uh, willingness to take the spotlight from so many of these Republicans in the Senate, and especially when they were running for president trying to be the uh, GOP contender up against Hillary. Uh, Obamacare was terrible. We, we could not hear from them 
with uh, in, enough passion about how they wanted to repeal and replace Obamacare right away. Oh, right away. And lots of members of the House, too. And what's been going on in recent months? Who's been making the case forcefully, publicly, clearly? That really does matter. As I've said to you before, there are some places where Democrats have lessons to teach the Republicans. And when it comes to the manipulation of words, the repetition of rhetoric, the tactics of propaganda and of, yes, salesmanship, Democrats seem much more adept than Republicans, especially on the issue of health care. They're able to boil it all down to more more coverage, cheaper price, better coverage, and oh, by the way, pre-existing conditions and on your parents' insurance. Yeah, it's a few thousand pages, but don't worry about that. We'll handle the particulars, America. That was what the Democrats did. Straight party line vote. They get it through. Not a single Republican vote. You'll notice no defections, no ideological, uh, you know, if, ands, or buts. No, no. They just march together. I understand that for a collectivist mindset, collective action, which is what Democrats did there, is, of course, an easier leap. But for the Republicans, they've got to they've got to take action. And part of that action is making the case publicly. And I'm so glad that Donald Trump is out there doing it today. Now, some of you may be saying, understandably so, I was having this thought myself. Where has the president been on this issue in the last few weeks, in the last few months, really? But I think it's also fair to point out that this is a legislative issue, first and foremost. Yes, the president has a right to be selling this, but how or has an obligation, has a, a role, I should say, not a right, a role to sell this. But what is he selling? Well, the Senate has to be clear on this. Obama knew all along that he was selling a, a government, a, a slow-moving but eventual government takeover of health care. And that it was phased, it was staged over time, and that there were a lot of special interests and the Democrats uh, involved in this behind the scenes, and that this had been the dream. Obamacare was the dream of Democrat progressives and statists for over a century. So they knew that they just had to do it. And once they had forced, once they had set up the basic architecture, they could tweak, they could adjust, they could do what is necessary for them to maintain that control. Because really, ultimately, it's about control. Where are Republicans talking about freedom? Where are Republicans? When was the last time you saw a senator on TV or during, you know, some of them love to do radio interviews. Uh, when was the last time you heard them talking about how this is, they still believe it's unconstitutional, right? They still believe that forcing someone to buy a private product is not the purview of the federal government. Or do they not believe that anymore? Was it all just a ruse? Was this just some big trick that they've played on the GOP base. Trump could have been out there selling this more, but I also think that he has been hampered. He's been slowed down by a Republican majority Senate that isn't even sure that it wants to go along with this. And never mind the House. I mean, the House had problems, too, with Paul Ryan. So what's he going to sell? Well, at least he's bringing this back into the realm of debate. He's fighting. He is positioning this. So that as the motion to proceed that Mitch McConnell in the Senate is promising this week, as, as that is getting more attention, we'll see what happens with that. At least the American people have some focus on this issue. I, I know there are a lot of sites that are the, the Kushner story is their favorite story today, but it's really not that interesting. We'll spend a little bit of time on it. It's more important to get into 
framing this debate. What is the discussion? What's at the heart of this? President Trump was, first of all, making the case that Obamacare is based on lies. You know, if you like a plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. And that was not true. That was not the reality of Obamacare. It was based on lies. And uh, the president reminded Americans of that today. Every pledge that Washington Democrats made to pass that bill turned out to be a lie. It was a big, fat, ugly lie. Democrats promised Americans like Steve Finn, a former police officer in West Virginia, that they would save $2,500 a year under Obamacare. Instead, his premiums have more than tripled. That's pretty bad. As a result of Obamacare's skyrocketing costs, Steve and his family and many of his employees had no other option than going on Medicaid and giving up their existing coverage. That's pretty bad, folks. No choice, right? No choice. This is what was necessary here. The president of the United States telling human stories, telling stories about Americans and what this health care bill has done to them. Because otherwise, all you hear from the media is, oh, coverage, coverage, coverage. There'll be less coverage if the Senate, if the Republicans get their way. Forget about just the Senate. If the Republicans get their way, if the Trump administration gets gets its way, a lot of people will not have coverage. Well, people may choose not to have coverage, but if you eliminate choice from this equation, then you're just left with the government determining what your health care is, what you'll pay for it, and how quickly you can get it. If you eliminate choice, then you eliminate the market. If you eliminate the market, then you just have the government far too involved in this entire process. And it already is too involved, by the way, even if Obama, if they pass repeal and replace, or let's just say repeal, if they pass repeal this week, and they gave themselves a two-year period to deal with uh, some dislocations in the healthcare markets, and then they have a replacement bill. It's not like at the end of this whole thing we would be in healthcare nirvana and everything would be great. You still have far too much government regulation. You you still haven't dealt with. Oh gosh, we good on the whole list. Tort reform. I mean, government spending on healthcare is way beyond what it should be. And healthcare is not is the one part of our economy is the one part of the uh, one part of our consumer lives that just never it just doesn't get better. In fact, it gets worse. It gets more expensive. Now, why is that? Well, one, you don't you have the stifling of market incentives that would make via competition that would make things cheaper, better, more efficient, better for the consumer. And you also have a massive scheme of healthcare subsidies. Under the guise of insurance, it's not insurance, it's subsidies. If you are getting health care right now through the individual market, you are either subsidizing other people or you're the recipient of subsidies. But we should at least all know what's going on, right? We should speak honestly about this. And Trump resetting the discussion and making this about human stories, about what's really happening to people, is essential you know, I, if I have to hear one more time of some, you know, Paul Ryan, oh, yeah, Medicaid savings in a decade, it's going to just be life-changing for every— No, it's not. And even if that were true, that reforming Medicaid over the next 10 years is fantastic for the national debt and for the budget and everything else, that's not going to get it done right now. People need to know right now why does action need to be taken. And at the, at the heart of this whole Trump speech, he said it is a time for action. He said we are here to solve problems. 
I'm so glad, by the way, it wasn't an hour-long speech with Q&A. I mean, this is what Trump needs to get out there on key issues to his platform, key issues that he articulated during the campaign that allowed him to uh, decisively beat Hillary Clinton, which I know now it's this article of faith. Oh, Hillary was this terrible candidate. Uh, well, actually, um, the entirety of the media was completely certain Hillary was going to win, and the polling had her winning. So we can all say now that she was such a terrible candidate. I mean, obviously, I think she was terrible, but there was something to Trump's message, okay? Not every candidate that could have possibly run would have beaten Hillary Clinton. I think we all recognize that. The message mattered, and the messenger matters, and Trump being out there and saying, look, we've got to do something on health care, this creates the political space for the Senate to take action. That's what has to happen here. This debate is not going to be... I think this is one of the fundamental misconceptions that uh, the GOP runs into time and again, along with those who are Republicans uh, in name only, who are fake conservatives, who are dishonest about what they really want to do when they have legislative power. That's a real problem. We have Republican senators now who are like, yeah, Medicaid, kind of like the expansion for my state. Wait, I thought limited government, small government. I thought the debt. I thought, no, no, that was all. I thought we were in the trust tree. I thought we were in the nest. No. Apparently we were not. But you have all these Republicans that have been talking about repeal and replace for such a long time. It seems to me that they have forgotten that there must be action taken. That the rhetoric that's useful for re-election is not enough, and that they have to do things that they will get heat from the media and maybe even their own constituencies for doing, because it's in the best interest of the country, and because if we're really going to win this argument over who should be in on, who should be in control, all other things being equal, in control of your health care, you and your family, and your doctors, or insurance that's mandated via central planning in D.C., the federal government making these determinations for you. Who who should, on balance, be in charge of these things? That's at the core of this debate. And you have to take action so that there are, uh, there are things that happen that we can point to and say, see, this is getting better. You know, we, we need to take action so that people can see the solutions Working, And you know what? We, we need to see if what we really believe works. Can the market have a greater impact on insurance? Can the market do a better job than central planners in D.C., than Obamacare's architects, as President Trump says? Let's see. We need to be judged by outcomes. But the only way you can get to outcomes based on Obamacare and repeal and replace and all these things we're talking about is if the Senate, if the House, if the Republican Party takes action. Action leads to outcomes. Outcomes lead to winning the debate, which can benefit all of the American people. But just sitting around talking about it and looking at budget projections and CBO and all that's not not going to cut it, not going to do it. I want to get into some of the specifics of what Trump said this uh, Senate bill will do because we don't know that much about it other than what he has said. And uh, then we'll move on to... Well, a whole bunch of other things. I am going to give you an update on the uh, Charlie Gard case later on in the show, as well as talking to you about how it's not population explosion, but population implosion. That is a global and American problem. Um, And we'll also talk about Mueller's special counsel, some updates on that. A ton of show team. We'll be back in a few minutes. Donald's dropping the hammer, apparently. Uh, He's he's, uh, gaveling it in. He's getting real here. He is going to... uh, He is going to push forward with this motion to proceed. 
And there will be a vote on Tuesday that he says it's the only way that Republicans can make changes to Obamacare. He's meeting with outside conservative groups. And, ooh, this is the pressure is high right now on the Senate to get something done. What is in this Senate GOP health care bill? Well, here's what Trump said about it today. The Senate bill eliminates the painful individual mandate. It eliminates the job-killing employer mandate repeals other burdensome taxes, and will significantly lower Americans' premiums. It will stabilize collapsing health insurance markets and give Americans far more choice and far more flexibility. That all sounds good, to be sure. Uh, Now it's, of course, well, you got two things. One, is that really what will happen with this bill? And we'll see. Uh, But before we can get to that, so I guess two should have been one. uh, The next part of this is, can they even get this through? Can they change the law and add to existing law when it comes to health care in such a way that we can even see if the ideas here work the way they're supposed to work? Uh, Don't have an answer here on that because the Republicans, it's not clear. There are Republican senators who really like being senators, don't want to have to go get a, you know, get another job. And if it means that their no vote keeps them in office, even if that has terrible long-term consequences for Americans in the individual health care market. And keep in mind, the individual market sends all kinds of signals. The individual health care insurance market sends signals to the rest of the market. If we could make an individual market that was... Um, flexible and full of choice and efficient and worked for people, well, then, you know, it would affect the employer market too, right? The employer insurance or employer-based insurance market as well. But, I mean, don't expect any help. We're going to talk about where the Democrats are going with this, of course, coming up here, because we need to understand what the opposition is. But as Trump said, don't expect them to uh, move move an inch on this issue. They want to forget about the countless Americans they've hurt and the many that they are continuing to hurt every day by refusing to help us replace Obamacare. For the last seven years, Republicans have been united in standing up for Obamacare's victims. Remember, repeal and replace, repeal and replace. They kept saying it over and over again. Every Republican running for office promised immediate relief from this disastrous law. We as a party must fulfill that solemn promise to the voters of this country to repeal and replace. Democrats are not going to work with them, though. So it needs to be Republicans here on this issue that uh, that take action. Uh, We will see if they're able to do it. I want to talk to you about uh, what the Democrat line is on all this, of course, from none other than uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader and We also I would like to hear from you, too. What do you think about uh, Trump's speech today? Do you think that he is resetting the health care debate in a way that could have real real impact, real influence on what's going on with the Senate? Can this thing actually get done? Can repeal and replace happen? 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. We've got more. Be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. We've got Jerry in West Virginia on WWVA. Hey, Jerry. Hey, how you doing, Buck? I'm good. Thanks for calling in. 
Listen, I, I was just thinking about this and, and hearing his speech. And, I, you know, every time he gets up and does a campaign-type rally and speaks and makes these points, I think, why is he need doing this like Reagan did? I mean, whether the media likes him or not, President Trump can say, hey, I'm going to address the nation, and they're all going to cover it. And he could come out and say these very things on a nationwide address and appeal to the American people like Reagan did. You know, Reagan wasn't even a salesman. He was known as the great communicator, and that's because he did a great job of that. But Trump could come on and only, only communicate this, but sell this to the average Joe. Now, Jerry, I th what do you think about my, my theory on this, though, that, you know, Trump has two things going against him when it comes to exactly what you're talking about, which is being the great communicator on health care, because we need that right now. It, there needs to Absolutely. be a, a political... Uh, groundswell. There needs to be pressure on some of these holdouts in the Senate who don't want to repeal vote, who don't want to take action. We need them to feel like, well, I, I better do something here. Uh, but I think that Trump has, look, I, I mean, part of this is maybe just that there there's some learning on the job that's going on here and the recognition uh, is, is coming to them maybe a little belatedly that Trump needs to be on this issue. That's possible. But I think you got two things. One is that uh, Trump doesn't really know exactly what he's selling to the American people on health care because the Republicans that are on the legislative side of the House can't seem to figure out what it is they want. Do they want to? You know, he can't be running around saying repeal and replace, repeal and replace, and then we get Obamacare 2.0 or Obamacare light, right? So that's one part of it. And also, I, I think that there's been a bit of a vacuum from the Senate side and, and the House side in making a case to the American people about what this bill is going to be, and Trump doesn't necessarily want to step ahead of them on this. But I think the first point is probably more valid, which is he doesn't even know what he's selling because they don't know what they're selling. You, and that is a, that is an excellent point. But I can tell you this, I, I, as a salesman myself, I can tell you this. You can come out to the American people and say, look, we need a new health care plan. You need to call your senators or your congressmen or both. Tell them to get on board, work together, get done well have a majority, because unless they do that, we're going to continue to have this nightmare, and I cannot sign legislation unless they put it across my deck. I hear you, Jerry. Shields, hi, man. Not Thank you. Not only could he— Thank you for calling in, buddy. We're, we're, we're losing you on the uh, the lines uh, cutting out there, but thank you for calling in. Um, look, I think that this is important. By the way, uh, you know, always be closing, everyone. You know, telling's not selling. It's an important part of the president's job. I actually think that it's his best—it's President Trump's best skill. Uh, selling concepts, selling ideas to people. I think that's what he has excelled in as an entertainer. Uh, I mean, he's obviously, well, I should say that's what he's excelled in as a politician. He's also very entertaining, and that's why he was good on the entertainment side of things, too. Um, but his style of communication is very effective, um, in large part, because it's not the uh, polished, overly refined, and therefore feeling kind of disingenuous political speak that you get from so many, especially from within the Beltway community, right? Those D.C. types. The swamp, as people call it. Hashtag drain the swamp. Saw a lot of that over the weekend. So I think that's uh, that's important to keep in mind here as well. But the president did a, a good job on it. I, I want to move to what the look, we, we can't just say rah, rah, go, go Republicans, although that's important, too. We also have to look at what the opposition has in store for them, what the narrative is from the left, and how this is going to play out with the midterms now already starting to enter the conversation. Isn't it amazing how quickly we go from new administration to midterm fight for political supremacy? You know, it's just—it feels like just yesterday— 
you know, Trump was taking his uh, oath of office and progressives were marching down the street outside from my house screaming, not my president, and me kind of muttering to myself, no, no, he's actually your president. Whether <laughs> You may not like it. You may think it's terrible, but he's definitely your president. Sorry. Sorry. So uh, it feels like that was just yesterday, and here we are now already. There's talk of the midterms, and there's people out there who are going to be saying that that has a major influence on the direction right now of the health care debate such as it is and i think that there's truth to that uh but democrats got two things two big things happening right now uh you've got schumer out there talking about health care and the new economic agenda these things of course are going to be tied in together i want to deal with the democrats version of what needs to happen with health care first um and also uh their better deal right better ingredients better pizza better deal uh, the Papa John's Democratic Party slogan. Uh, we'll get into that as well. But uh, some broad spectrum thoughts first, or some 30,000 foot thoughts, macro level political analysis from the Freedom Hut here. Uh, you know, standing atop my uh, thatched roof hut in the, hu- in the Freedom Hut. Um, this is what I see. Uh, I see that the Democrat Party still hasn't figured out who the main spokesperson's going to be, right? They want to leverage Obama's continuing popularity among progressives and the left, but they understand that Obama can't run again, he's not going to run again, and there's a a sense, I think, maybe they don't know this yet, but I think they will figure it out, that having your former president, who is now a private citizen, as your most prominent spokesperson, sends a signal to the political world uh, and to the American people that you really don't have a bench, right? You don't have people that you're going to bring up into that role. I'm hearing, I know I'm hearing people talk about Senator uh, Kamala uh, Harris, uh, or Kamala Harris, pardon me, whichever one's correct. And I know that there are people who have been talking about Cory Booker for a long time, uh, Elizabeth Warren, of course, but you know, she's just not particularly charming. I mean, she's really in the she comes from the Hillary Clinton school of charisma, which is failing grades all around. Hello. Uh, she's not, I think, national political office material or she's not presidential material. Uh, but who knows? Because the Democratic Party uh, is definitely making some moves right now, some lurches towards the progressive populism of, for example, a Bernie Sanders type. And I think that this is in part because they may have some buyer's remorse over the whole Hillary campaign thing. Uh, They may recognize and this also, I think, ties into why they're so uh, still so angry about the election. They haven't moved past it at all. And it's because Hillary was really all they had. You know, I mean, they, they decided they couldn't do Bernie at the national level. They couldn't have Bernie as the party standard bearer because the guy's a Democrat socialist. It's not a big problem. What do you mean? It's going to win the election. But no, they, they just didn't think that you know, socialism's not that cool yet. They were thinking about it, but they couldn't get there. So they went with Hillary. The problem with going with Hillary, though, is that she lost. <laughs> That's very uh, Captain Obvious just arrived in the Freedom Hut. No, but it was, she lost. Um, but they had put so much into the Clinton brand and the Clinton name, and, and that that was the plan. There really was no plan B for the Democrat Party. That's what still you're seeing that play out now, such that you've got Chuck Schumer, 
out there talking about, you know, the uh, the better deal. You could call it like Schumerism, you know, his better deal economy stuff. And we could call it instead of uh, you could call it con- con- consumerism instead of consumerism because uh, you've got con man Chuck Schumer out there doing his thing. Uh, but first of all, he, he is making the case publicly right now as we have this health care debate happening. He got Schumer making a, a case for. Oh, that's right, everybody. This is a guy who gets a lot of money, I should note, from Wall Street donors. And, you know, is very plugged in in New York, New York here where I am. And he is talking about single-payer health care. The beginning, week after week, month after month, we're going to roll out specific pieces here that are quite different than the Democratic Party you heard in the past. We were too cautious. We were too namby-pamby. This is sharp, bold, and will appeal Some- to both the old Obama coalition, let's say the young lady who's just getting out of college, and the Democratic voters who deserted us for Trump. Yeah, they've recognized that they they got they got beat straight up politically. I mean, they won't say that, of course. They're going to say that it was Russia. Oh, the Russians, they stole the election. Uh, but the reality is that the American uh, worker... And I don't just mean the factory worker. I mean people who go to work and their families and and that there were a lot of Americans who felt very much like they were left out and left high and dry by the Democrat Party. And so they're going to do outreach now to them. Um, They've been talking about uh, how single payer is an issue that they might look at now, because that, by the way, gives them a, a huge boost among progressives. But also there's this new economic agenda that uh well let's let me get into this but i'm gonna wait and go into the break and uh we'll talk about chuck schumer's offering up the democrats economic agenda what that means what it looks like how it will play out in the midterms and you're getting a a little bit of a preview of the big fight here my friends the fight that is coming the battle that looms let's hit a break we'll get into it stay with me why don't americans know where the democrats stand for and is that your fault well, it is in part our fault. When you lose an election by, with someone who has, say, 40% popularity, you look in the mirror and say, what did we do wrong? And the number one thing that we did wrong is we didn't have, we didn't tell people what we stood for. I, uh, there's a part of me that feels like, well, at least Chuck Schumer's willing to say that, you know, Hillary obviously is to blame for this. Uh, I'm sure maybe in the next breath or a few paragraphs later, he's going to say that Russia and all that stuff. But I have to, there's a, a shred of honesty in the statement here that, yeah, you lost to Trump. And I know it's a backhanded compliment or, you know, it's meant to undermine Trump, what he says. I get that. But still, they couldn't beat a guy who they say was so unpopular and so terrible. There's There's got to be a reason. There's, there's got to be a reason. And, well, Hillary was certainly a big part of it. What I think is interesting is that the Democratic Party is, uh, well, it, it's, there's a, a problem here of Hillary didn't know what why she should win, or, or rather, why you should vote for her. She thought she should win because she's Hillary. But there was no clear message behind Hillary Clinton's campaign at all. What, I, I'm with her? I mean, that's why, why not just have your campaign slogan be like, here I am? I mean, okay, yeah, he, here you are. I'm with her is like the least inspiring thing ever. Or what is it, Ready Together? I can't even remember. I mean, they tried all these different ones. And I remembered one of her earliest, when she officially launched her campaign, one of her earliest ads, and I was thinking to myself, 
what is this? This is supposed to inspire what exactly? Um, and it was never clear to her. It was obvious as a candidate. A vote for Hillary Clinton was what? A vote for the Beltway insider, special interest, dominated status quo? I, I think that's probably a most the most accurate, with also a lot of continuation of Obama progressive uh, cultural uh, concessions and issues. And, you know, I, I think that's what she, if you're going to be honest about it, what she was really all about, and that's what you've been voting for. Um, but it's not just that Hillary didn't have a message. The Democrats didn't have a message at least not a message that would win at the uh, national presidential election level. They, they didn't have one. What do they offer? They've already gotten Obamacare. Uh, amnesty, they didn't. They, you'll notice they, they, they weren't really running on on uh, on amnesty, right? They run on immigration reform, right? Everything is just reform. It's never the thing that they want. What do Democrats want on immigration? People who are here illegally to be legalized permanently so they'll vote Democrat. That's what they want. Everything else is noise, right? Everything else is, is pretense. That's that's first and foremost what Democrats want. And by the way, a lot of Republicans, too, want that. What do they want on health care? The government deciding who gets what when it comes to health care, shifting around the pools of money via insurers, telling you what you pay, telling somebody else what they pay. You subsidize other people's health insurance or they subsidize your insurance, and that's all up to the government. That's what they want. With That's what health insurance means, right? Oh, and a lot of health, welfare, which is what Medicaid is. That's what Democrats want. Every, everything else is secondary to that. those basic ideas. They can't run on that, right? So what are they going to run on now? Well, they didn't have a message with Hillary. They can't say, hey, that message that you rejected with Hillary Clinton is actually the right message because, one, it obviously didn't work, and, two, they're not even sure what it is. They don't know. Hillary didn't know. So now they're coming up with something. They're calling it a, a better deal which is about as inspiring a slogan as I'm with her, but that's what they're going with. And here's Schumer on the Sunday show talking about it. Hey. Tomorrow, Democrats will unveil our economic agenda. It, it's called a better deal. It has three components. We're going to raise people's wages and create better paying jobs. We're going to cut down on their if they have to pay, and we're going to give them the tools they need to compete in the 21st century. Okay, some problems with this, <laughs> right from the from the outset. Uh, Democrats don't. They don't. I mean, when they say raise wages, what they mean is, of course, raise the minimum wage, because they the, the market determines wages. They don't actually determine wages unless they mandate through something like a minimum wage what people get paid, and that does not have the effects that Democrats wanted to. But it sounds good, right? Fifteen dollar minimum wage. They're going to run on that, which will have enormous. I mean, if that becomes the national. Federal minimum wage, $15, have enormous implications. I mean, the retail sector, which is already under so much pressure, and I talked to you about it here on the show, and I was just reading over the weekend that they expect right now that 50% of shopping malls in America, this was in The Guardian, which I know is a British newspaper, but, you know, it's a newspaper, uh, 50% of malls are expected to be closed in a decade. Now, will they find something else to... You know, well, they just, I don't know, a lot of corporate entities will take that space. Maybe, maybe not. It's probably expensive to keep up and maintain. Right? Maintenance costs are always the unforeseen in a lot of this stuff. You know, what does it cost to keep that mall going? Keep it heated, keep it cold, keep it clean. 50% uh, of malls, but think about your local town or think about wherever you are. If half of the storefronts in malls, which I, you know, in a lot of places where, you know, I'm here in New York City, so malls are less a part of the culture, or at least 
less than what you see in a lot of suburban areas. Um, but if half those stores go away, what does that mean to employment in the area? And people say, oh, well, they'll move into other jobs. Okay, what are those jobs going to be? And how long will it take people to fit into those jobs? But raising the minimum wage is just going to accelerate a lot of that. It's going to accelerate the, uh, the die-off of jobs in retail. And it will, I think, also force consolidation in uh, service jobs, most notably being a server in a restaurant and, and other you know, cleaning services, things like that. Uh, because it'll become too expensive. And you'll have, yes, with fast food, when you talk about the really major service industry employers, you're going to have increased automation. This is just, this is just what's going to happen. People have less hours to work. There'll be layoffs. Some people will make more money, but there'll be automation. And they're just squeezing the balloon in one place and saying, look at what geniuses we are and forgetting about what's happened in the rest of the balloon. Uh, better better jobs. I mean, they don't make, the government doesn't make jobs. I mean, in fact, I think there's some report about an Obamacare-era program. I just saw the headline on it. But some Obamacare-era program that spent like $2 million for a couple of jobs or something. I mean, I'll, I'll remember what it was in a few minutes. But that, that sounds about right. That's usually what the government what the government does. It spends a whole lot of money. And, oh, yeah, here you go. This is from the Daily Signal. $2 million Obama-era program gets 17 people jobs. So, yeah, the government can create jobs at a cost of, you know, $2 million for 17 people. That's, there you go. Your government, your tax dollars at work, my friend. So that's one way for it to happen. But, uh, yeah, this better deal agenda the Democrats are pushing for, it's just stuff that sounds nice. It's just economic populism that ignores economics. So, you know, there's only so far you can get with that, um, but it might allow them to regain power. Uh, but I want to talk to you about uh, late, some stuff on immigration. I will give you an update on the Charlie Guard case later on in the show, as well as talking to you about uh, central planning here in America and around the world and its effect on population growth and how we are facing a population implosion. That has big implications. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. So Jared Kushner, who's the president's uh, senior counsel, um, has been uh, out there today dealing with a whole bunch of issues, uh, including a behind-closed-door testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee and also released a full and detailed public statement about this Russia stuff, these supposed Russia meetings and, oh, the creation of a back channel and all. And you know, I, I read through his statement, all of it, and it seems to make sense to me. Uh, you know, there's nothing in it that I look at and say, well, that that doesn't add up or that's a problem. Uh, this, this is uh, all a question of whether or not you seek to believe that innocent activity is because you've already bought into this idea of a Russian collusion narrative that innocent activity is, in fact, not, that it's nefarious, that it is uh, of, of ill intent. And so Kushner, um, whom I actually met once some years ago and talked to for a little while about media stuff and seemed like a nice enough fellow. I didn't really, uh, you know, seemed fine to me, um, but he spoke about this today. We don't we don't usually get to hear from Jared. It's interesting. I think a lot of people in the media are like, what does he even sound like? Because he doesn't speak publicly all that often. Uh, he's a pretty low-key guy, I can tell you that. He is not overly uh, demonstrative and uh, not overly theatrical, maybe a better way of putting it. He's a pretty low-key dude. 
Uh, here's what he had to say about all this Russia collusion stuff. Let me be very clear. I did not collude with Russia, nor do I know of anyone else in the campaign who did so. I had no improper contacts. I have not relied on Russian funds for my businesses. And I have been fully transparent in providing all requested information. Now, he said in his statement that specifically with regard to forms that he filled out that are legally binding in the sense that you have to be uh, forthright and honest on those forms for a security clearance. I know because I went through that process myself. I remember it well. And he said that more or less it wasn't just Russians that were left off or Russian contacts that were left off those forms. It was all foreign contacts. Essentially, there was a mistake made. The form was submitted too early. He made an addendum. And Look, when you're talking about government forms, an honest mistake should be treated as such. So, But if, if you hate Trump and everything about Trump, of course, you think that this is all some grand conspiracy. Um, meanwhile, I, I will give uh, Jason Chaffetz uh, credit uh, with regard to how the media treats the issue of Kushner and his security clearance and his foreign contacts versus, say, I don't know, Hillary Clinton and, and her emails and bleach bit and hammers taken to phones and all that. When I tried as the chairman of the Oversight Committee to bring in Ben Rhodes to talk about the Iran situation, mm -hmm. nobody knows what the deal with Iran was. Right. They claimed executive privilege. I think the Trumps need to actually get a lot of credit for openness and transparency. They didn't delete their emails. They provided their emails. Right. When they wanted to talk to them, they said, you can talk to us. And yet when we did the same thing with the Democrats, they gave us a stiff arm every single step of the way. Former Congressman, you know there is a double standard in Washington, yes. D.C. and the mainstream media. And there's a double standard with the United States Senate Republicans because they are holding them to a much higher standard with very little evidence than they ever did the Clintons. And that investigation, why did it end? Just because there was a political election. So I think that's wrong. Okay, so I think that this is an important point, that we've, we've got all this focus on Kushner and his security clearance forms. Uh, meanwhile, to do, do any of you think for a second that it was normal and not, not incredibly suspicious, incredibly fishy, that Hillary had aides who were destroying uh, what was clearly evidence for a real ongoing criminal trial, or what was about to become an ongoing criminal trial, and destroying phones with hammers, uh, using bleach bit to try and really erase emails. I mean, well, why did they do all that? Clearly because they knew, despite despite the fairy tale belief that Hillary didn't know that she was sending emails that had classified information in them. Hillary Clinton's a lot of things. She's not a moron, though. And over 100 emails with classified information, no way that that escaped her notice. There's no way. So that's why they used the bleach bit. But at the end of the day, they didn't have to use bleach bit and all that stuff to override the, you know, to override what was on their servers because they got a pass from the DOJ. That's that's all it comes down. That's just the reality of it. That's what happened there. So I think that that's uh, a, a good place to then transition into, okay, so now that was a standard, a DOJ standard set for Hillary and her top people and also the immunity deal that they were all given. Give us your stuff. Don't worry. No matter what's on it, we won't prosecute you. Wow. That's a great, that's a great deal. Um, you've got... The ongoing special counsel uh, situation, and uh, you've got, first of all, before we get into the special counsel, you got Trump attorney Jay Sekulow out there saying that all this stuff about pardons, people got to stop talking about the pardons.
Under the Constitution, under Article 2, Section 2, the president has the authority uh, to pardon. But I want to be clear on this, George. We have not and, ha and continue to not have conversations with the president of the United States regarding pardons. Pardons have not been discussed and pardons are not on the table. While it makes for interesting academic discussions, let me tell you what the legal team is not doing. We're not researching the issue because the issue of pardons is not on the table. There's nothing to pardon from. Yeah, this is like I was saying to you last week. A, a pardon for what? They don't even know what the crime is yet. How can you have pardons? How can you be discussing pardons when you don't even know what the crime would, you know, it would have to be a federal crime. What would it be? Uh, we don't know. They, they don't know. They, they've got no idea whatsoever. Um, meanwhile, though, the, the, you've seen that the two, the two themes that the media was supposed to run with last week were Trump pardoning people who are, of course, criminals and bad, and also the possibility of firing Mueller, the uh, special counsel. And uh, Chuck Schumer, of course, raising that issue because he's trying to set the agenda for the Democrats for the week. Here's what he said. So if he fired Mueller or pardoned himself or someone close to him under investigation, it would be one of the greatest, greatest um, uh, breaking of rule of law, of traditional democratic norms, of what our democracy is about. I think it would cause a cataclysm in Washington. Can I just note that there are, there are congressional investigations ongoing, and those congressional investigations, we got an, you got an investigation in the Senate, you got an investigation in the House, all looking at this Russia stuff. Their findings could easily be taken by the DOJ for a prosecution of anybody that they want. Right. So it's it's not this is the the myth. And, and it's unfortunate that we have to spend. I know you're like, Buck, let's talk immigration and, and other things. And I, like I said, we will we can get into other topics here just in short order. But you got to deal with this stuff. You got to smack down the the lies, the myths, the half truths, the untruths, all of it. And this notion that if the special counsel was gone, there could be no justice. Then Trump will have gotten away with everything. Don't accept their framing of the facts. If someone was found by the other multiple investigations ongoing, never mind what the media is doing, right? And they've, you know, they're getting access to all kinds of stuff. If there was any finding of real wrongdoing, criminal wrongdoing from the other investigations, the Senate, the House investigations, the Department of Justice could bring charges. The Department of Justice could very well bring charges, right? There's no, there's nothing that stops them. So you, you, the attorney general, well, the attorney general accused himself, but any, you know any other senior prosecutor in DOJ could say, okay, here we go, we're going to go get so and so for what was found out by the investigation. So, you know, if let me ask you this: if the special counsel is so necessary, why are the congressional investigations happening? What's with all the testimony? What's with the subpoenas? Uh, the special counsel's on it, right? I mean, how many investigations do they have to have in D.C. on this completely hyperinflated issue of Russia collusion? How many investigations is enough? Oh, oh they, they fire the special counsel and, and it's, you know, the death of democracy. You know, democracy will be dead in the darkness, like Washington Post says. I mean, that's, that's what they're trying to tell you. Meanwhile, I'm like, well, why do they even have all these other? Shouldn't they stop doing all the congressional investigations? Shouldn't they give that up? Because those are those people, you can't lie to Congress. Jared Kushner's statement, people are saying, well, he wasn't under oath. You, you can't lie to Congress. That's a crime. 
So they're, they have the right to compel testimony. They're getting statements. They're doing investigations. They have the right to meet with people behind closed doors, as they did with Kushner, if they want to talk about sensitive, classified information with regard to the Russia investigation in one capacity or another. They're able to do that. So if, if the special counsel is the uh, sine qua non, if you will, of investigations into Russia collusion— What's what's with the other ones? Oh, of course. The reason they're so fixated on the special counsel, unsurprisingly, is because they realize that the special counsel is under a lot of scrutiny and political pressure. And I do think it's relevant. I do think it's valid to look at the backgrounds of the uh, special counsel investigative team. You got a bunch of people that I mean, this is the main. It's the main story on Fox News right now. I know, but the there are lawyers who gave to Trump. I mean, gave to Hillary. No lawyers who gave to Trump. You got a bunch of lawyers who gave to Obama and gave to Hillary who are on this team. Uh, you don't think that they want to be hailed as heroes at the end of this? Let's just let's look at the motivations of Mueller's special counsel for a moment here. Of of the various people that he's assembled. Uh, these are these are lawyers. As an aside, but I think a necessary one, law schools have been infiltrated with much of the same progressive uh, social justice ideology as other undergraduate campuses have. I speak to people who have just graduated from law school. Uh, I know some of them very, very well. And I'm like, look, did you have a single professor's conservative? Maybe they, maybe over the course of three years of law education, they, they might have had one conservative who was probably like a stealth conservative, didn't even really want to come out and talk about it. But So I know that there's there are conservative lawyers out there. I have friends who are conservative lawyers. But you got a lot of, especially the kind of lawyers that go into, uh, go into working at the DOJ, you got a lot of Democrats. Okay, start right with that. And to pretend that prosecutors don't have political ideology at work in their actions is— Unfortunately, to be naive, I wish it were true and we should hope that it's true and we should try to create accountability so that it is true. But just as we see with the battles over the Supreme Court, does, does any does any serious adults around saying, well, you know, I mean, the Supreme Court, they're, they're, you know, there's not really an ideological bent here. I mean, you're going to see if there's another seat opened up. I mean, the Democrats are going to be in a blind, vengeful fury against any conservative that could become the next Supreme Court justice under the Trump administration, because we all know it's politicized, okay? We all know it is, unfortunately, just another mode of politics, another venue for political action. You think the the DOJ is so different? Why would that be the case? No, in fact, based on what we saw with Eric Holder, Loretta Lynch, and uh, various attorneys general before them, of course the DOJ is politically uh, inclined. It's unfortunate, but it's true. So, yes, we are going to look at this team that Mueller has because th- they're just people like everybody else. They have political ideologies. They have a sense of what they think is best for the country. And I, I can promise you this. The benefit of the doubt will not be given to the Trump team based on the people that Mueller has assembled. Uh, the benefit of the doubt will not be given to this White House on anything. And you can say, well, you know, it's all about rule of law. This is the moment you start getting into whether or not there'll be charges for collusion or whether or not there'll be a ch- charges for uh, a, a, a non-national security leak of some kind or, you know, wh- whether or not there'll be charged. 
these are all very politicized decisions. You're, you're operating in a gray area. And it comes down to, yes, discretion. And so since there's so much power, so much authority that's been given to this special counsel, isn't it only sensible, isn't it necessary to get some sense as to whether the deck is already stacked against this White House with the special counsel. And, you know, look, all you have to do is look at how, how fixated on this the Democrats are. Oh, the special counsel goes, it's all over. Because this is their best tool against this White House. They know that. This is a weapon against the White House. It has nothing to do with justice or Russia or finding out whether the integrity of our election was breached. This is a way to erase the Trump victory, and it's a way to get revenge on all of those who opposed Hillary and the Democratic Party's ascension to power. That's what the special counsel is about. I know you're not fooled, but we cannot allow ourselves to be fooled by all these sanctimonious claims of uh, nonpartisan DOJ act. Well, I know this is within the auspices of the DOJ, but kind of out of the usual chain of command. Anyway, all right, all right. Uh, got to go into a break here, going a bit long. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. Tom in Ohio, WWVA. Hey, Tom. Good afternoon, Buck. I, I really appreciate uh, your program and your perspective. I want, I want to tell you that. Up Thank you. You know, I I think that Jeff Sessions either needs to get off of dead center or resign or be fired. You know, he's in a position, uh, granted, he is Attorney General of the United States, but he's also appointed by the President of the United States. To uh, to a certain extent, he is a political animal as well as uh, head of the Justice Department. And where political crimes have been committed or may have been committed, such as the unmasking, such as the uh, whole situation with the leaks, such as uh, the uh, server and the uh, foundation, such as, uh, you know, going back to Fast and Furious, going back to Lois Lerner, uh, going back to uh, uh, Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton on a tarmac. I guess what I'm saying is there, there are instances there where I think he ought to be convening grand juries and looking into those matters, because when this when this all comes down to you know the the next midterm election, Buck, you're going to have people voting on well, okay, the Republic, the liberals are saying this, the conservatives are saying that, the uh, investigations by the Senate and the House committees, uh, the the Democrats are saying this, the Republicans are saying that, the, the, they're probably going to be a toss up for a lot of people, and then decide on the basis of what uh, the special uh, prosecutor is saying, who is totally biased, and really, I'd say he ought to even investigate that. You know, was there collusion between uh, Comey and uh, uh, Mueller and the uh, deputy attorney general when when uh, he stepped stepped aside? But if he's not going to get off a dead center, then I think he is useless because, quite frankly, uh, you know. It, there, it's, no, look, it's a political fight. I mean, Jeff Sessions is an honorable guy, but he's in the middle of a political fight. And if he's going to be Mr. Rulebook and and try to be the Boy Scout here, it's it's that's it's not the role for him. But Tom, thank you for well, he can be the, real quick, Buck. He yeah. can be the Boy Scout, but but not the Forrest Gump Boy Scout. He's got to be the Sergeant Elvin York Boy Scout, who's taken the fight to the enemy. Uh, uh, taken out a few of the machine gun nests, and a lot of the rest will surrender. Well, wow, that's quite a Boy Scout reference there. Boy Scouts, machine gun nests. All right, Tom, thank you for calling in. I was like, I thought they just built, like, fires with sticks and things like that. And, you know, I was a Boy Scout for, like, a couple of months. 
We didn't we didn't take it. We didn't do any machine gun nest stuff. Uh, but I, I know what he's saying. Joe in Massachusetts, WKOX. What's up? Up in the Boston area. How you doing, Joe? Oh, good about yourself. I'm uh, good. Mark, I was wondering if you could, uh, based on the history of Robert Mueller, his his decision making has it been political through his history? Has he been has he been a constitutional person following the law in 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 his in his career? Or could you get a little bit into it? Uh, sure. Well, look, I, I can tell you um, that Mueller was uh, look. He's a Princeton grad. Uh, he w- has been a longtime FBI guy. He was obviously FBI director. He had been a U.S. attorney um, and a- an assistant U.S. attorney, FBI director for a very long period of time. Uh, I think the longest, they say, since Director Hoover. Um, and well, in terms of his political decision-making, I mean, Joe, I-, I honestly, I'd have to look in to see where Mueller may have shown his political side a little bit. But um, it's a very good question. Let me think about it and look into it a bit more. Shield time, man. And uh, team, we'll be right back. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. So Kellyanne Conway was uh, making the rounds to talk about some of the uh, shakeup in the White House communication shop and some other issues as well. Um, let's well for, first actually because this is a continuation of what we were just talking about. Uh, you had Kellyanne Conway on Mr. Mueller, and this is what she had to say about the special counsel. Are you are you actually alleging that there were active conversations with Russians trying to change the election results? Because very few people are actually saying that. Are you saying that? Or are you just trying to? Put it out there because you guys are so invested in there being something we there. What is there? What constitutional know. crisis are we facing right now? I tell you what. I tell you what. I'm going to leave know. that to Jeffrey Tubin and the law experts. But many people <laughs> okay. are afraid that if this president fires Robert Mueller, we will be in a constitutional crisis. Why doesn't the president just want Mueller to prove that Trump is right that Russia was a hoax? Why doesn't he just want Mueller to go ahead and confirm that for him? Well, isn't Mr. Mueller and his band of Democratic donors doing that? Aren't they trying to do that? <laughs> you notice that she threw that in there. I, I should note, and I did not leave this out intentionally before. I was just going uh, off the cuff when uh, we had that caller asking about uh, former FBI Director Mueller. Uh, he was a a decorated and wounded combat veteran in Vietnam. Uh, he uh, he was. Awarded a uh, Purple Heart. Uh, he was leading a leading a platoon in, in Vietnam. So, uh, look, he, he's the guy's a the guy's done a lot of great public service, and and he is a uh, he is a war hero. So, I mean, he's he served his country honorably, and you know, let's let's keep things in in the proper perspective here. That doesn't mean that his group of Democrats aren't a bunch of lawyer hacks, though. <laughs> the people he's got working for him, and that doesn't mean that he's going to make the right choice here. But we were asked about his background that I certainly didn't want to leave off. That he was a, he's a Marine Corps uh, veteran, which is an, an essential part of, of who he is, and it's an essential part of his bio. And uh, you know, we 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 uh, respect his service. So, uh, but on, on this other issue though about uh, Kellyanne Conway, she's going back and forth there with Brian Stelter, whom I, I had uh, some some interaction with back in my CNN days. And still the only person to ever do a full interview with me and then just pull it because he just got just so annihilated. He wanted to debate whether something was jihadist terrorism or not. And I was like, well, I'm a former CIA counterterrorism analyst from the counterterrorism center. And uh, 
you are a guy who pretends to know things about the media on TV sometimes. So I don't know why you really want to have this discussion debate, but we can, and we did, and he got he got uh, so so thoroughly schooled, as the kids say, that the interview never aired. They just never aired it. They were like, ah, let's pretend that didn't happen. Uh, so that was my only interaction with him. So it's very tough for me to think that there's a whole lot of a whole lot of substance there. Um, but anyway, he uh, he then went back and forth with Conway. Oh, and also notice the thing. You know, why not? Why not allow Mueller? Why not allow Mueller to just prove that there's nothing wrong here? That Trump didn't do anything wrong. Democrats, they know how this. They, we saw what happened with Scooter Libby. We know how this game is going to get played out. Trust me, they're not going to find some smoking gun that shows Trump collusion with Vladimir Putin that is it's just it's never going to happen. Okay? It, it didn't happen and it's never going to happen that they find something because it didn't happen. And, you know, we just can run in circles with that. But will they get somebody on a process issue somewhere? Look at it with a big deal they made over Jared Kushner's security clearance. And they're going to make a huge deal out of anything they can. So it's just again, it's dishonest. It's disingenuous. It's very slimy and false to be like, oh, well, let's just let the special counsel. And it would force a constitutional crisis. What would be the constitutional crisis? I'm not saying that it would look great for the administration, but what would be the constitutional crisis? The special counsel is not invulnerable to being fired. Special counsel could be fired. So what's the big deal? Um, You know, you do get into this. Uh, the reality of, of a lot of different institutions in American governance are that they have to they do police themselves. And that is an imperfect thing at best. Uh, and there are politics that override much of what should be the deciding factors in those kinds of investigations all over the place constantly. So I, I just try to take a very, a very realist view here with this. And, uh, you know, there, there are reasons why. When Democrats or Republicans come in, they empty out the Department of Justice from all, all of these you know, U.S. attorneys go and AUSAs get shifted and all this stuff because you want to have your people in a DOJ. It's not just because of priorities. It's just not. I and mean, we can all sit around and pretend, but I don't know why we have to live in that fantasy land. Um, anyway, so Conway went back to Stelter on the issue of CNN's business decision, which I also thought was interesting. We're very happy to come and take questions from, uh, from I think, an outlet that's been incredibly unfair and systematically against this president. I guess you made a business decision to do so, but we're here trying to connect the American people with the president's message and answer your questions as respectfully as we can. So in your first answer, you made several points about the administration's accomplishments, but you started by attacking CNN. Why does attacking CNN. CNN make America great again? No, I'm sure you want that to go viral. I'm not attacking CNN. I'm wondering why CNN spends its time. You said the company made a business decision to be unfair to the president, when in fact what we are trying to do is cover a very unusual president and try to explain what the heck is going on at a White House that that seems awfully dysfunctional. Let's break that down. Well, first of all, that's not fair. And I constantly hear this coming out of the mouths of people who have never worked in any White House, let alone this White House. If you want a more candid, clear look at the functioning of the White House, I invite you inside. Come inside. This is the people's house. You are welcome inside to see, but we never get those calls. We just turn on the TV and we see a one-way, non-conversation using words that are meant to deride and deny the president his due. Yep. I, I, she's she's spot on there, and also I should note that uh, this the, the notion of this whole idea of a, of a business decision at CNN, uh, 
I think it's even worse than that. I, I do think that there are a lot of uh, career and, and exalted within the halls of CNN, at least. There are a lot of career CNNers uh, who believe that the president did collude, believe that they have uh, wagered their professional reputations and whatever integrity that they believe they have and what they do on bringing down this White House. And and so that, that train has left the station. There's nothing. They are not going to be able to turn that around now. That's what they have decided. They are they are branded as that. That is who they are now. They are the they are an anti-Trump network. The problem they have, of course, is that their previous brand had been, whether you believe it or not, that they're a more centrist, journalism-focused, breaking news-focused organization. That was certainly the that was the uh, the self-described uh, tagline for CNN when I was there. Not necessarily accurate, but I'm just saying that's what they thought. You already had MSNBC as the leftist, progressive. Uh, media outlet, uh, major news source, and never mind, of course, that all media outlets except for Fox lean left. All the news outlets do, right? So that's not surprising. But MSNBC is already there. Which, by the way, I see on Drudge a big headline that MSNBC uh, is uh, won the week in the demo for the first time, I think ever, or certainly the first time in a long time. So that's indicative of people turning to MSNBC. If you're a progressive and you want Trump is terrible, the administration's awful, and you want some credibility behind that that's not uh, wrapped up in this facade of, oh, we're just journalists, man, like we don't have opinions, then you go to MSNBC, you're not going to go to CNN. I mean, who, who are the real conservative? Who are the conservative voices that you see on CNN represented in these mega panels? They have all these, quote, analysts and, quote, journalists going on TV who all have the same point of view about Trump and everything that he's done in his administration. And it's just boring because they're pretending that they're not, you know, they're, they're pretending that they're not making a very clear uh, decision night in and night out with how they cover the administration. It's just it's just nonsense. It really is. But, you know, they continue to push this. So um, also, by the way. Switching gears here for a second. Our sponsor this half hour is Zip Recruiter. If you are hiring, you got to know right off the bat that one of the most important decisions or the most important decisions that you'll be making has to do with your personnel, who you bring in to staff your organization. And if you've got a job opening right now, Zip Recruiter is simply the best place you can go to find great talent. Uh, which leads to a successful business. You can post your job to 100-plus sites with a single click, and that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Go on their website. Check it out. I'm telling you, it is so clear and straightforward, and you're going to be like, wow, this is so easy, such a great way to find fantastic talent for my business. Uh, and right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. All you have to do is go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck, B-U-C-K. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash buck. Uh, you know, I, th I thought we were going to get into a immigra an immigration discussion today. I'm not sure we're going to have time for it on today's show. I might have to push that to tomorrow because there's a few more things I've got to say on this. Uh, we are talking about the Charlie Guard case in Hour 3. I have an update for you, a very sad one, but an update for you on that story. Uh, and then we'll also talk about Elon uh, Musk and his 
and just the broader issue of population explosion versus population implosion. It sounds kind of maybe a little nerdy and scientific. It's actually a fascinating discussion and, and has enormous implications for all of us. Oh, and the Huffington Post uh, is running pieces now that say that, not, that women are not the only ones who have a menstrual cycle. I'm not making that is a true thing. I'm not making up that they say that. They they say that it's not just women with menstruals. I, I mean, I'll explain it more in the next hour. But I, I, you know, wow, yeah, that's what they are saying about uh, these things, these issues. Um, Bradley in Arizona on KFYI. Before going to break, what do you got? Uh, Buck, I just want to say thanks for everything you put out there. I'd, I'd really appreciate it if I got more. Hillary Clinton impressions. It makes me laugh every time. All right. Sure thing, man. Thank you. But, but I was listening to uh, when you were talking about how CNN uh, is, is they want to be the centrist in news organization. You know, CNN is doing the same thing Donald Trump did, and they're doubling down on their on, on Russia. That's that's they've bought into that brand. They they bet everything on that. So far be it away from them to ever say we've made a mistake, we did something wrong, because that would be admitting some level of guilt. And, and you know, if you are the self-described uh, uh, pinnacle on the mountaintop of everything that is truth and, and, and right, as CNN thinks they are, then you'd be admitting to your own failures as well. So yeah, I mean, they, they, they think, I mean, the, the internal the internal di- dialogue at CNN uh, for a lot of the employees, and I know this because some of them still reach out to me, and they're like, why don't, why are you such a, a stooge for Trump? Like, why, do you, why don't you understand that this was a threat to our democracy? And I'm like, you're, you're cr- like out of, you're bizarre, out of your mind, you know? I don't know what to say to them. Uh, but the internal dialogue there is that they are the gold standard in cable news, big J journalism. That's the that's the brand. But how how can that be the brand when they have so many stories running on Russia that are just complete nonsense and crap? I, I don't know what to say. Well, actually, I do know what to say. Cause I'm a radio host, but you know what I mean. It's you kind of got to scratch your head sometimes with it. But that that's the brand that they built, and that's and they're going to stand on that as long as they can until another story comes about or until they're proven right whatever yeah, I mean, keep in mind that they they ran with they ran with the missing plane thank you for calling in bradley uh, from uh, from arizona on kfyi uh they ran with the missing plane story uh, like it was breaking news for months i mean the plane thing was it was cnn was the missing plane channel for months so they, they will not they will not shy away from just you know, it's focusing in on one thing. Um, all right, uh, quick break here. We've got more. Stay with me. I talked to you a little bit about uh, Shark Week last week. Just, you know, a little fun. Mix it up. You know, don't sit around talking about Russia, collusion, Trump, special counsel. Uh, yeah, I, I, I talked to you about Shark Week for like a segment. or I may have mentioned that. Michael Phelps, the uh, most decorated Olympiad of all time, was going to be swimming against a great white shark. That's how it was set up. Now, I'm not, I'm not uh, a lunatic, so I understood that they weren't like gonna. Although, think about talk about the reality TV ratings, they weren't gonna like dump Phelps into a pool somewhere and then like release a great white shark and like see if he could get away from it, right? I mean, that like I understood that there was gonna be safety precautions, but I figured they would have. A great white out maybe in the, you know, out in 
the open ocean and they would show that swimming and maybe Phelps would be in some kind of a contained tank somewhere or, or you know, a, a cage and be swimming it the way that people do cave, uh, cage diving with great whites or something. And he would swim, uh, you know, 40 yards or so. I, I don't know. But I thought they'd at least make it look cool. I did not think that they would have their big stunt for Shark Week would be Phelps swimming against a CGI, a computer generated image of a shark. This was about the lamest stunt I've ever seen on TV. I mean, it was whatever the opposite of jumping the shark is, which is when you know you go too far or something. This was like that. This was this was tripping over the shark. I mean, this was the opposite of jumping over it. It was so very lame, very very lame. Um, which I guess you know I was watching Game of Thrones anyway, so what you know, fine. But it's just disappointing. Shark Week. You make me sad on the inside. Okay. Oh, Scaramucci, by the way, uh, has been uh, making the rounds as well. Um, Kind of a a reset from the White House in the last uh, few days on the the messaging and on who's going to be doing the messaging. And you had uh, Scaramucci, Mr. Scaramucci here, Anthony Scaramucci, um, saying that he's going to crack down on the leaks. But he's done absolutely nothing wrong, and there's no... No need for him to pardon anybody, but he just doesn't like the fact that he has a two-minute conversation in the Oval Office or in his study, and then people are running out and leaking that. Is so it, we, what happens to leakers on your watch? They're going to get fired. They're going to get fired. Um, I wonder, you know, absent, we're not talking about criminal leaks here of, of uh, classified information. We're just talking about leaks of what's going on in the White House, right? Those are two separate. You've got to keep those distinct in your mind. But just leaks that are things they don't want people talking about that aren't a legal issue, uh, I, I wonder how they're going to go about tracking down those leakers. I, I'm just putting this out there. There is a possibility that a hunt for leakers uh, when there's no when it's not an issue of, of law, when it's just an issue of trust within an organization, could very easily be used as a means of uh, clearing out some folks. I don't know, folks who's names rhyme with grievous you know it's just possible right that maybe finding a, a leaker or or not you know i'm not saying that anybody sounds like that is leaking but you do open up some some territory saying well we think you're leaking and therefore you no longer serve at the pleasure of the president right so just i would say keep an eye on that uh, and oh by the way we heard from spicy sean spicer he talked about why he resigned and here's what he said not most people aren't really uh, privy to how stories are developed and what stories are uh, make it to the front page or to uh, the mainstream media, whether it's in print or in broadcast. And I think they'd be shocked and disappointed to see uh, some of the bias that exists in some of the stories that don't get told or the manner in which they are told. Uh, I be- was increasingly disappointed in how so many of the members here of the media do their job, or rather don't do their job, the bias to which they come from it at. Um, and as I mentioned a while ago, I think that there's become a, a very clickbait mentality among a lot of reporters where they're more interested in their clip or their click than they are about the truth and the facts. Hey, amen, Spicy. I'm with you on that for sure. Uh, media is increasingly like the, the kids who think they're the coolest kids in the cafeteria all gathering together and trying to throw food at the not so cool kids. And it's gross. I do not. I do not like this profession. I like the work. Uh, I like getting a chance to address Fellow patriots all across the country, but the rest of the media people, a lot of them, a lot of them we could do without. We've got more. Stay with me, team. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 11-month-old Charlie guards fight against a life-ending disease, a congenital disease known as mitochondrial depletion syndrome. Uh, his fight will be ending soon. That's the uh, latest we have, uh, the update in this case that had drawn international attention because it pitted the right of the state, in this case the U.K., to determine when for reasons of uh, humanitarian concerns and budgetary constraints and whatever else the state decides is a necessary, uh, a necessary component of the decision-making process versus the rights of parents to decide what is best for their children, in this case parents to decide how to proceed with the life of a desperately ill baby, an 11-month-old who had a disease that even in the, the best-case scenario here, which would have been seeking immediate experimental treatment, it was very unlikely to turn around the course of this disease, but it was still the right of the parents. It was still their call, and in this case, the United Kingdom uh, government authorities and hospitals, which are run by the government in the U.K., had usurped that parental right. And now we're told that because of the delay, because of the slowdown in the decision-making process, as a result of the state, the U.K. stepping in and saying, sorry, parents, you don't get to make this decision, it is now too late even for the experimental treatment of Charlie Gard. Here is what his father had to say earlier today. It's a uh, gut punch. It's a heart-wrenching statement, but I thought you should hear it from the father himself. Charlie has been left with his illness to deteriorate devastatingly to the point of no return. This has also never been about parents know best. All we wanted to do was take Charlie from one world-renowned hospital to another world-renowned hospital in the attempt to save his life and to be treated by the world leader in mitochondrial disease. We will have to live with the what-ifs which will haunt us for the rest of our lives. Despite the way that our beautiful son has spoken, has been spoken about sometimes as if he is not worthy of a chance at life, our son is an absolute warrior and we could not be proud of him and we will miss him terribly. His body, heart and soul may soon be gone, but his spirit will live on for eternity and he will make a difference to people's lives for years to come. We will make sure of that. We are now going to spend our last precious moments with our son Charlie, who unfortunately won't make his first birthday in just under two weeks' time. And we, are, and we would ask that our privacy is respected at this very difficult time. To Charlie, we say, Mummy and Daddy, we love you so much. We always have and we always will, and we are so sorry that we couldn't save you. Sweet dreams, baby. Sleep tight, our beautiful little boy. We love you. So perhaps this case is not one that can be seen as having anything but a tragic ending. Um, and it's very sad for Charlie's parents. But there is the, I would hope, uh, the takeaway from this for governments and more importantly for people around the world in the UK and here at home as well that every child deserves life, every child deserves every uh, effort that can be given to that child at life, and parents are the ultimate arbiters 
of a child's best chances for survival. Um, and in this instance, when there was no dispute, I mean, just to go over some of the facts here, uh, there was no dispute that it would make Charlie's life uh, shorter, that it would uh, harm him irreparably to try the experimental treatment. In fact, the only consensus was that Charlie was running out of time, that Charlie Gard was going to die. It was just a question of when, depending on you know the continued progression of this just horrific disease, which destroys the cells and ravages uh, internal organs and Charlie Gard, I don't know if, if you had read this already, but wasn't in that many of the stories about it. He was so beset and and weakened by this disease that he, and the full name of the disease is encephalomyopathy mitochondrial depletion syndrome, or MDDS. It is incredibly rare, but it is one of those terrible things that just reading about it frightens you. And the fact that this afflicts any child anywhere in the world is is deeply saddening. Um, but there was no disagreement that this would be fatal for Charlie. It was just a question of what the timeline would be. And the debate all came down to whether Charlie's parents had a right to seek one last reprieve, one last hope of improvement, perhaps even in what would be a medical miracle, a cure uh, but the state, the British authorities, said no, that you could not even, that Charlie Gard's parents did not even have that right to try and seek a cure for their baby boy. And that delay in wrangling in the courts now has uh, deprived him of his last, his last shot. So this issue raised for all of the world to see is a reminder of the fact that in a, in a state where the bureaucrats and government authorities control your health care. They control the power of life and death over you in many circumstances. And there's something that is deeply troubling about that on a philosophical level, on a level of what it means, between, what the relationship means between citizen and state, and also the state's power of life over its citizens. Uh, this should never be the case. The state should not be able to determine who lives and who dies um, outside of the context of uh, war on the battlefield. And I suppose if you are a death penalty uh, proponent, um, the legal processes, but healthcare decisions, uh, this should not be left up to state institutions. They're just not equipped and they're not going to be able to make uh, judgments that are, uh, well, judgments that are moral, judgments that are ethical and that are fair. Uh, they will make decisions based upon, as all states do, uh, various competing interests, including special interests. And if you have some unaccountable bureaucrat who's looking at a spreadsheet of where expenditures should be and where expenditures should not, and that's the last word, keep in mind, you're not even allowed to try and seek redress on your own, then the state really does have power of life and death over the individual. That was really the, the sticking point here. That was where uh, the argument for the UK, I think, for and, and, and for those in the medical community, um, it should be kept in mind that there were doctors who were saying, no, it actually is best that Charlie Gard be taken off of life support because he is just suffering and he's just going to continue to suffer and there is no hope here. There were doctors who were making that case uh, that on humanitarian grounds to end his suffering, Charlie Gard should be allowed 
to die. Now, whether you agree with that ever, philosophically speaking or not, that someone's suffering should be ended or they should just keep fighting until the very last, that should not be a decision that is left up to the state when there are competent parents, uh, loving parents, who are trying to make the best decision for their child. But at an even broader level, the Charlie Gard case is a reminder that we live in a world where there's tremendous interconnectivity and there's the ability for a story like this to go global and to be something that is, is international. One case, one life can become the focus of the whole world, at least for a short period of time, for a few days. Uh, but we are also in this world of, of technology and our connectedness also creates a sense of a disconnect often from our fellow human beings because we read so much about distant diseases and wars and famines and problems all over the world, it's easy to uh, become somewhat uh, numb to the transgressions of various states, including very advanced uh, Western states and, and our own here in the U.S. And the uh, without getting too deep into discussion about uh, abortion and about uh, euthanasia's advances in this country, uh, life really is under assault in our uh, current era. I know that there are studies that show that violence and public tolerance for grotesque violence has gone down considerably uh, over the centuries and that we are, especially in the developed world, less and less accepting of violence and, and we are becoming, as a race, a human race, less violent in general, uh, and those are all very positive. Um, those are all very uh, encouraging studies, whether you believe them or not. And of course, we're just one terrible war away, I think, from a, a, a shift in that, um, in that trajectory. Uh, but with the era of uh, the internet and uh, states that can be omnipresent in a way and that have more insight into our day-to-day -day lives and therefore also the greater ability to organize and control us, uh, a, a state that does not protect life at, at every turn, at every possibility, is one that has become morally corroded. Um, and it comes from all of us, really. We have to stand up and say, no, uh, the individual, the sanctity of individual life, each individual life, is the very foundation of a just society. And all of the rights that we enjoy and all of our fights about freedom and individual liberty come from the concept that one life is precious, every life is precious, and we are to do everything in our power whenever possible and however possible to protect life. And it is often not just forgotten in our society, but unfortunately here in America, that principle has been under assault. And we see it in discussions about what are so-called women's rights. We see it in discussions about euthanasia. And with Charlie Gard, you even see it in the guise of the healthcare service doing what is best for a patient and trying to override the rights of parents. So we need to keep an eye on this issue, and this is an ongoing fight. This is not something that's just today, next month, next year, we can stop talking about it. The sanctity of life is the basis for a just society, and we need to do a lot of work on this issue here in this country, in the United States, and in the United Kingdom as well, but I'll leave that to them for now. Uh, team, we will hit a break here and come back. Stay with us. 
Tim, I have to give you something of a content warning here because uh, this is going to get weird. Uh, it's going to get a little bit uh, gross, but it's also a discussion that we have to have because the left is forcing us to have it by pushing policies and uh, social perception in this direction. So just a little content warning. We're going to talk about something called menstrual health activism. I was not familiar with this until over the weekend. I did not even know this was uh, something that anybody had to talk about or think about, but apparently it is. And uh, this pretty much sums up, I believe, what menstrual health activists, uh, what they believe, and this is from the Huffington Post, which is now just a, a conglomerate of left-wing uh, lunacy, but here's what's written uh, in the Huffington Post article that I'm going to talk to you about here on menstrual health activism. Quote, not all people who menstruate are women, and not all women menstruate. Now, my first problem with this is that it is false, is that it is provably and demonstrably false. Only women menstruate, and men do not menstruate. This is just a physical process. Ah, but why does this need to be overcome? Why do we have to have a debate, a discussion now, about a very basic fact of biology? How has this become a place for activism you might be wondering. Or, or some of you are like, fuck, I'm actually not wondering. This is so bizarre. But this is uh, what's being pushed on the internet. I mean, this is the Huffington Post. One of the biggest sites in the world is pushing this now as an idea. And the piece that I'm referencing is powerful photo shows that women aren't the only ones who get periods. Um, and it's this uh, trans activist who is female who holds up a photo that's uh, of, uh, well, it's herself, but prefers to be called himself. Um, periods are not just for women, hashtag bleeding while trans, showing the area of the, uh, the area of, you know, and it's, there's bleeding going on there in the photo uh, through pants. And this is why I gave you the content warning. I don't know how, I have to describe it to you so we know what we're talking about here. Um, but this is just crazy. I mean, this is really just, it, it's, it's too much. And, you know, I'm all for taking the other side in a political or social debate uh, seriously, but the, uh, the desire to refute or to ignore or to lie about basic biological facts is not something that I'm willing to go along with. Uh, and this trans activist... Remember, this is all based on the premise that periods, quote, periods are not just for women, uh, so which is false. Periods are just for women. Only women can get periods. This is a true statement. And uh, I don't like bending the knee to lies, no matter how much it offends or upsets people. Uh, but here is this poem, this activist, which there's a lot of cursing, so I'm going to cut that out of it. But I'll read to you some of it. Um, uh, and... I was 15 and still happy, running around, all chest bared, and uh, climbing trees, digging holes. I mean, I think my mom was worried, so I went and grew out my locks, a sign I was normal, still a girl, a painted neon sign for my gender box. So the day I got my period, my God, a, a day so proud, this little andro kid had been bestowed 
the straight cis shroud, cisgender, uh, that's what cis means. The relief got all meshed up in my pain. In that moment, I sat down and cried. Everyone told me my hips would grow. I looked at them and couldn't stop crying. What's wrong with you? You'll be a woman. They kept celebrating a child dying. See, my body had betrayed me. That red dot uh, on a contract left there broken, a gender identity that wasn't real. Most people deal with blood and tissue, and yet my body forces me to surrender because every time I get my cycle is another day I shed my gender. This is, I'm sorry, this is a, uh, this is a mental health issue. Uh, this, this rejection of female biology because somebody prefers not to be female and the, and, and the rejection of this uh, based on the premise that somebody is being, uh, that their core identity is somehow being negated by their own biology. Uh, this is, this has gone over the line, everyone. I mean, this, it, it's been there for a while, especially with transgender rights. I mean, there, there's been a disconnect from reality that is at the heart of all this. But, but when someone's writing poems about how they cried when they got their cycle uh, as a young teenager because it meant that they were, in fact, really a woman, um, what, we're supposed to think what at this point? Uh, and, and I just, uh, you know, the, the, the pushing of this notion that not only women get their periods is just... Well, it's it's a falsehood. It's a falsification. It's not based in biological reality. And it is so fascinating to me that the left, who are so imperious about science, hashtag science, and not actual science, right? They're imperious about grandiose, centrally planned policy that they have to ram down people's throats with tremendous social pressure and government force uh, in order to push along their preferred policy outcomes. And they call it science. And they, in fact, do violence to science in the process, right? They do violence to open inquiry, to evidence over emotion. They destroy those as basic concepts. And they have no idea even what the scientific method is, all these people who are yelling about science. But here we have the negation of basic biological functions in the Huffington Post. And I just wonder, at what point is it too much? Uh, At what point does it become a sign of bigotry merely to just remark on the differences between the sexes. Uh, At this point now, it seems like we are trending, we are heading in a direction where it will be considered uh, rude and perhaps even bigoted to note that women have a menstrual cycle and men do not, and that that is, in fact, a manifestation of a scientific biological reality that is not mutable, is not changeable. It's not a question of how you feel on any given day. No matter what I feel like tomorrow, I'm not going to get my period. No matter what this trans activist may think about himself or herself or whatever their preferred pronoun may be, she is a female and she has certain biological realities. Now, if, if she wants to ignore that, not have children, not get married or get married, you know, to somebody of their, her own gender or someone else's gender or whatever the case may be, that's all under the rubric of, you know, choice and individual action and fine. But don't tell me that I have to pretend that menstrual cycles are not only for somebody of this, uh, somebody who is female. That is an ironclad fact. There is no way around this, no matter how much the left tries to 
deny it or change it. Um, all right, team, we're going to talk about population explosion or implosion and Elon Musk in just a few. Stay with me. He spreads freedom because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Some in the climate change movement will talk about a pending catastrophe, the looming destructive force of humanity. I mean that literally, as in the more people we have, the worse it is for the environment. And there are these fears of a population explosion out there. And this will lead to completely nonsensical and idiotic campaigns from major left-wing news outlets, Vox, Huffington Post, and sure, the big networks as well. Well, they'll talk about how you can lessen your carbon footprint by having fewer children, or maybe just don't have any children. They'll also, recently Vox uh, went this far as to say that just don't be rich and your carbon footprint will be smaller. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's going to sign on for that one. But it has been taken as an article of faith for a long time in governments now across the world. And this ties right into the UN multilateralist one world government philosophy out there that there's a population explosion underway and it needs to be contained. It needs to be controlled. But of course, this is yet another instance of what could only be described as a massive international failure of central planning because yes it seemed logical it seemed reasonable based on what happened in the 20th century to begin to be concerned about the possibility of populations that were unsustainable but of course these governments can't see into the future they don't understand technology they don't know what society will look like in 10 never mind 50 or 100 years and so while we've seen enormous growth in populations around the world, I mean, you've gone in the last hundred years from a global population of about 1.7 billion. OK, around 1900, the U.S. population was about 1.7 billion. And by 2000, it was six billion. OK, a hundred years, you've seen a three X increase in global population. So this led to people to go with the fallacy in governments around the world where they actually set up population ministries and they would bring together global experts and how to handle the coming pandemic of population, that there would be this explosion in the masses of people all over the world, particularly in the developed world, because life expectancy had gone up so much as well that it had to be managed. It had to be controlled, central planning. Once again, whether we're talking about Mao's Great Leap Forward or Stalin's five-year plan under the Soviet Union, these huge ideas controlled from the center without any uh, checks or balances and that are just based in self-selected expertise that make choices for millions and millions of people with enormous impact on their lives, this is always a giant failure just waiting to happen. And we've seen some of the worst instances of this with, for example, China's one-child policy, this effort to deal with the population bomb by literally state mandates against population. But 
what we've seen even in the developed world is a concerted campaign, whether we're talking about in Europe or in America, to have fewer kids. And that means, whether it's, by the way, about uh, climate change or any number of issues that come up, you know, continuing the welfare state, not overburdening the welfare state, which, of course, now we know that you need more workers to support the very generous welfare benefits of the post-World War II Western world and Japan and other countries. But instead of being in the midst of a population explosion that can't be contained, globally speaking, we are actually in the middle of a baby birth implosion, meaning we are not having enough kids. The developed world in particular is not replacing itself. And none other than Elon Musk recently spoke on this issue to CNN. Is a very high dependency ratio where the number of people who are retired is, is very high relative to the number of people who are net, net producers. And so you cannot, the, the, the social safety net will not hold. We didn't evolve for this because we sort of evolved to just always procreate and there wasn't birth control or anything. Right. We just like have lots of babies. It's like pop the course and like hopefully some of them would survive. That would be, that was like all of human history until very recently. And now it's, uh, you know, you've got cases like Japan where adult diapers outsell baby diapers. Yeah, that's right. Adult diapers are outselling baby diapers in Japan. And that's just one indicator that I think gives you a pretty good sense of where a lot of the developed world is trending. Italy, France, all of Western Europe, really not replacing itself, meaning that the people who live in these countries are not having enough children to perpetuate the very society in which they live. Now, this has also led to a whole bunch of issues where we begin to think, or we are told at least, that, well, the answer to this in the developed world is to bring in a lot of immigrants from the developing or the third world. And that, of course, includes many disparate cultures, and that leads to lots of cultural friction and dislocation. When we're talking, remember, not about immigrants in numbers that can be assimilated into the new culture, but massive infusions of foreign and often from one part of the world, foreign immigration. And we saw this in Germany with a million immigrants in one year, but even that is in fact not enough. And that's, I think, what people don't understand right now. Even if you went with incredibly uh, lax border policies or very welcoming policies with regard to immigrants, the numbers won't be enough. Here's Elon Musk on that issue. We should be concerned about demographic implosion. Why do you say that? So if you look at countries like Japan, most of Europe, China, and you look at the birth rate in a lot of those places is only at about half of the sustaining rate. When you have an inverted demographic pyramid, so if you like look at the, the pyramid and you've got age duration, 60-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 20-year-olds, you know, like sort of a demographic pr- pyramid. Right. Um, and in some countries, it's sort of, it's like an upside-down pyramid. So it'll sort of fall over. It's like it just will not, will not stand. So yes, you, you could in fact try uh, to bring in large numbers of immigrants to make up for the implosion, the population implosion that's going on, but you're never going to have enough in terms of the numbers, and you're going to deal with a lot of the social, a lot of the societal problems that come along with infusions of people who don't speak the language from different cultures who may need a lot more 
uh, support and a lot more uh, help in competing in the new economy. So immigration is not the answer to the population implosion. And governments are just waking up to this now because it's becoming a balance sheet issue. It's becoming an issue of how do we have taxation to support our, what in this country is the baby boom, but around the world, there's been this massive increase in life expectancy and the central planners in any government that has the ability to centrally plan are looking at this issue and I think recognizing for the first time they have made enormous errors, that they did not really think about what the long-term projections should be, financially speaking, for the welfare states that they have created because there simply aren't enough workers. There's not enough productivity to tax. And if you increase the taxation on your shrinking labor pool because you have far fewer people actually showing up, working, trying to do a job, then where are you? Now you're just stifling what what already is a stifled and and uh, increasingly strangled private sector because of what you know government capitals have been doing around the world. I mean, this is a very serious problem with enormous economic and social implications. I mean, when you start to see that there are societies where you have entire political parties, and this is the reality. Right now, and by the way, the Democrats in this country are basically in this category where, sure, we should more or less be open borders. Bring everybody here. You can't speak English. You don't buy into the Constitution. Maybe you're down for Sharia law. Whatever the case may be, as long as you come here and are dependent on the state right away, you will vote Democrat because Democrats are the party of the state. And so the Democrats feel like the more dependence that they can bring into the country from the rest of the world, the better. That this effectively over time will dissolve our unique political culture in this country. That this over a period of time will make America cease to be does not even factor into the thinking of the Democrats right now because they're just looking at it from the perspective of power. And they figure if they're in power, they can handle the problems. If they're in power, there's no real concerns here because they will be in a position to make things right when we are effectively in America a one-party state, which is what they want, by the way. And the fastest way for them to get there, of course, is via unrestricted immigration. The only reason they're not open borders is because they want, for the purposes of census and government resources, to know who's coming into the country. But Democrats, with the exception of you know rapists and murderers, from what we can tell, uh, based on their public pronouncements, although they're not always so quick to want rapists and murderers even to be permanently expelled from the country, but Democrats want everybody to be able to come to America. And that, of course, really does mean the end of this country. It's just the end of the country in slow motion. And so these population flows and the population implosion that's happening in the developed world is is a symptom of this much larger failure of the central planning ideology at the heart of statist enterprises and statist thinking all over the world. And once you start bringing in immigrants, you're not going to solve your population implosion problem by bringing in vast numbers of immigrants from cultures that are difficult to assimilate. But you will create even more problems in the host country that does not have the ability to replicate itself. 
And then when you add one more layer onto this, there's real reason for concern. And I know I'm already giving you plenty to be thinking about and to be worried about here. But that's on the on the level of culture and norms and what is normalized increasingly. And Musk actually speaks about this in the context of China. So let's hear what he says about it there, and then we'll come back to this in a second. The same way, because, you know, they've had the one-child policy, and then even though they've relieved the one-child policy, the social norm has become to have an average of one kid. So even when they relieved that requirement, it didn't change. You can, you can imagine, like, people sometimes say, well, what about um, immigration? It's like, okay, look, there's one and a half billion people in China. Where is China going to get 700 million new people? Okay, that's like three Indonesias. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't work. And the, the full gravity of this will, it is not well understood, but will become a severe, severe issue in the, in the next few decades. Increasingly, what we see is that even in the, China is a great case study in this because of their terrible one-child policy. Even when the one-child policy is relaxed, people still only have one child. In the West, in our crazed global warming, got to recycle, take bicycles to work, climate change is going to destroy the world culture, there is social pressure on people to have fewer children. In fact, I have seen articles in recent weeks written about how the responsible thing to do is to have fewer children in America. Uh, having a lot of kids is putting an undue burden on the government to provide for you and per, and even more to the point, an undue burden on the planet because of our limited resources. I mean, they never the central planners never learn. The central planners never figure out that their prognostications, their long-term uh, forecasts of what the world will be like are based on knowledge that they cannot have, are based on factors that will change, and eliminate the need for localized variation and adaptation and decision-making. Uh, excellent book on this. It's a little wonky, but it's a really good book. It's called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. And he goes into this. He goes into case studies of government thinking that they're doing the right thing. And yes, based on the facts at hand, their enormous plans to redo the economy or to, to redo the landscape of a city or a country or their enormous programs at the national level uh, are how they're just such catastrophic failures time and again. And these population control measures in these countries are just another example in this cycle of governments thinking that if they have enough control, if they're given enough authority, then they will be in a position uh, to make right all of the issues that are arising at any given time. And in our culture, you can already see there are pressures. Not It's not just from the government. There are pressures from people. The progressive left is anti-Westerners having kids. They would never say this about the third world. They would view that as racist. And, you know, they want the third world to have as many children as possible. And by the way, there are some parts of the third world, although not all of it, uh, there are some parts of the third world that are having children at beyond replacement value. And so that also creates a shift because population is power. Demographics are destiny. This really matters. And we're seeing it play out in the 20th century, or 21st century in ways that once we get into the 22nd century, I think will be real indicators of 
who the next great powers will be. And you know, in America, we should be having uh, a much more open dialogue, a much more frequent dialogue about how people should be having kids. Americans, have children, be fruitful and multiply. And I'm sitting here realizing that I got to get married, I got to have some kids. Uh, so, yes, this is, though, from a, a social scientist, from a political scientist perspective, it is an enormous failure of 20th century thinking that population uh, will need to be constrained. And, in fact, if you look at the data on this, we would have 9 billion people right now if it weren't for the fact that we have all of these different programs and different social changes in place you got 83 countries and territories, according to foreign policy, that exhibit below-replacement fertility patterns. And those countries is about 44, comprise about 44% of the world's total population. So about half of the world is not having enough babies right now, everybody. That's just our reality. And uh, we would have a lot more people on the earth if it weren't for policies that are advocated by governments and by pop culture and by the media— and it's time we confronted this issue and had a much more fact-based discussion about where all of this is heading. Uh, because my generation is going to be hurt by the generation below me in terms of how many workers are going to be supporting how many retirees. It's going to be a crushing, a crushing uh, taxation problem for them. And when you add on to that, the $20 trillion in debt we already have, I mean, this is nation-state crumbling stuff. We have a population implosion looming, not an explosion. We need to have more babies in America and in much of the world. And with that, I'm going to go into a quick break here. Stay with me. All right, team, I went a little long in that last segment, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening. Please download the show. Go to uh, Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. Also, BuckSexton.com. News stories posted there. And T-shirts and hats are available, so do check them out. And my friends, until tomorrow night, no matter what comes your way, shield time.